What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to the Sixer Sense Podcast, hosted by site co-experts Lucas Johnson and Chris Klein. Welcome to another episode of the Sixer Sense Podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Johnson, with my co-host, Christopher Klein, and our producer, Uriah Young. And we have our, our guest and our, our contributor here, Stuart London. Yay. Sixers just Hello. lost a terrible series against the, the rival, the Boston Celtics, four game, four uh, complete sweep. And it's the first time in the two rivals' history that that happened. It's not a good night for us. We're we're feeling it, guys. How are we feeling after all this? Uh, I'm not on the uh, edge of a building ready to jump, so I'm taking it better than I thought. There you go. Yeah, yeah, not great. That's positive. I feel like we all knew this was coming. Hey, look, it was. I was feeling so bad after Friday's loss. I didn't even watch the game today, so I'm saving all of my my anger until later in this pod. So you guys do your thing, because I, I I'm I'm bubbling up over here. So uh, as you guys would imagine, we have a lot to talk about here, and we're gonna just go get right into it. Chris is gonna take it away. Chris, bring us along. What's going on? Yeah. So obviously, we're gonna start with the Celtics series. Unfortunately, we have to talk about the Sixers being that this is a Sixers podcast. So as Lucas said, this was a sweep 4-0. The Celtics pretty thoroughly uh, beating Philadelphia this series. Um, A few close games, especially games three and four in what was supposed to be Philly's home games. But in the end, the Celtics pulled away late. Um, We're going to start off with which individual Sixer do we think had the most disappointing series overall? I'll kick it to Stewart to start things off. Stewart. Who do you think had the most disappointing series? It's a tough one because, of course, the tougher question would be which Sixer had the good series outside of Embiid. But the most disappointing, I'm going to pull one out most people wouldn't think of, Furkan Korkmaz. He played every game. I do not believe he made a shot in, all, in any of the four games. I mean, he had a couple free throws in one of them. This is the guy we were told all year. Oh, it's okay. He's now our gunner. Yes, he was a defensive liability in the past, and we couldn't play him against teams with a lot of athletic wings, but he's improved. Every single time Brett Brown ran him out there, 
the Celtics attacked him, blew past him for layups, and after a few minutes, Brett had to yank him. No, it was not true. He could not guard anybody on the Celtics. He could not be put on the floor in a playoff game. And if you're not going to be able to be put on the floor of a playoff game, sit on the bench with the managers and throw towels at everybody, as far as I'm concerned. And he, he didn't even make a shot on the offensive end. He was a straight anchor driving the team down. And a team, with a team that was short on depth as it was, Furkan really came up small. You bring up. I wasn't even thinking forecast, but that's a that's a pretty good point. Uh, I was he wasn't my first option, but you you're definitely making him a, a top one for me. Um, I'm at a difficult point here because I have two players in mind: Al Horford and Tobias Harris. Tobias Harris did not perform up to the level of expectation. He she shot poorly. But he was aggressive, and it's not for a lack of effort. He just he couldn't get it going this playoff series. It might have been because, you know, Ben wasn't in the series and he needed somebody to help him create his own shot. It could have just been the fact that the Boston Celtics' wings are very good defensively. If, uh, and, you know, so you have to consider that too. So it could it's a, it's a number of things with Tobias Harris and then Al Horford. Like, why was he starting? Like, you know, Chris came out with the article, what was it, yesterday, Chris, with the sale or sink with uh, Harris? Uh, no, with Horford because of his reputation. That's what yeah. Brown was going on. Yeah, that sunk really bad. And it was clear after the first game that he should not have been starting. And, yes, Matisse Thibel did not have a good game, too. But guess what? He's a rookie. Give the kids some slack here. He was guarding Jason Tatum, an up-and-coming star in the NBA. He's going to have a bad night, especially his first time starting in a playoff game against one of the best perimeter scorers in the game right now. So, no, you don't yank Matisse Thibel after the first game where he had a rough one. He's still your best perimeter defender without Ben. Sorry to Josh Richardson, but it's true. That being said, if I have to choose one, I'm going to go with Al Horford because at least Tobias Harris tried his hardest. He really, yeah, he pushed the, pushed the envelope a little bit too much, but at least he tried. So, you know, Horford looked a step slow. He only scored in double digits game four, right, guys? Correct me if I'm wrong, but he didn't play well. And, you know, considering that he had an offensive matchup advantage most of the nights, it just should have been better, and it wasn't. And it was not just the scoring, it was the rebounding and the assist as well. He just wasn't involved. At least Harris tried. So that's, that's where I'm at with that. Yeah, I think, I think you both make good points, um, Stuart, with Furkan. I think the entire bench in general was really disappointing this series. Not that there was much of a bench to be disappointed with, but that's part of the issue, obviously. Um, but I'm right there with you, Lucas. I think this is between Tobias and Al. And just because he went with Horford, I'll say Harris. Um, I think with Al, we, we all kind of knew he was probably not going to do great in this series. I think a lot of us tried to you know, talk ourselves into it. I did myself. You know, maybe he'll take advantage of the size mismatch down low. You know, he knows the Celtics. He's been there for three years or something. You know, maybe he'll he'll really turn it on. He'll know what he's doing. But I think deep down we all knew that this is just not the series for Horford to succeed, especially on offense. And, and defense was obviously a mess. But with Harris, I think he's had a pretty solid season. He was really good in the bubble. 
I mean, the eight regular season games in the bubble up to this point, I think there's at least some optimism around Harris that he could do good, that he could put together a good series, and he just fell uh, fell short in every conceivable way. He shot poorly from three, shot poorly at the rim. His defense was a mess. I don't think he hit a three until game four, which, you know, as someone who was signed to a $180 million max contract, in part because of his efficiency from three-point range, that was... That's been part of the package his entire career. That's just really, really disappointing. Um, Harris was just not helpful this series at all. There was no game in which Harris was actively helping this team offensively. He's not an impactful defender. So I, I I think Tobias is my answer. But just about everyone outside of Embiid has an argument for this category. I think everyone disappointed at some point or another if their name wasn't Joel. Um, and I, I think it really just reflects poorly on the roster construction and on the front office for putting these pieces together that clearly do not fit. Um, we're going to get into this podcast with Brett Brown and with the front office and everyone and how these pieces don't fit. But I, I do think it is important to realize that a lot of these players, Josh Richardson, Tobias Al, are probably a lot better than they look in Philadelphia because of just how poorly this roster is constructed. But uh, you know, when you're paid like Harris is, you got to step up. You got to find a way to do something. He just did not do that this series. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's my my answer. So, and I just, uh, before we move on, and I know that we have a lot to talk about, I do want to say this. Game four, when Tobias Harris went down with that gruesome injury and then he came back to play, that's major points for him. And he, I still believe, even though he had a bad series, he is still a leader on this team moving forward just because of the heart that he showed coming back after that rough uh, injury. For sure. I, I do think Harris deserves major props for what he did in game four coming back after he fell really hard on his head uh, going up for a rebound. I believe he was evaluated for a concussion. He had maybe stitches in his eye. He had an eye laceration um, in the third quarter, came back in the fourth quarter. Uh, I think we could probably sit here and argue about whether or not he should have come back in and whether or not the Sixers should have let that happen. But major props to him for toughing it out and fighting through it. We're going to move on here, though, and talk about which Sixer we thought stepped up. I think there's a pretty clear answer here. I would not be surprised if we are all unanimous in our answer, but I'll let Stuart take it away. Well, I will go with... I don't even think I want to bring up Embiid because he's such the obvious one. He did step up. Although I will point out once again at the end of game four, if you noticed, we saw the leading way forward. We saw the going to three-pointers. He still was not in shape at the end of game four for the, for, the, for the end of it. Just like he was against Toronto when he said he would change. And obviously, he was great in this, in this series, but just also pointing out he wasn't perfect. He waved, if you remember, he waved off when Brown wanted to put in Horford for him. No, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I don't think he posted up the, the rest of the uh, game. People who stepped up, though, I will put on Shake Milton as my person. This is the guy, if you remember, last summer, they wanted to make him a point guard, at least so he could back up Ben Simmons, help a bit. He flopped so badly in summer league going against guys who are playing now in the Philippines and Zanzibar and Croatian Division Three. He was so bad after, I think, two, three games, they yanked him and put him at, at two guard or the three spot. 
And yet here is guys going against Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, not doing great, but okay running the show and and finding the ability against one of the top defensive teams in the NBA to to score. I mean, next to I think next up Harris and Embiid, the third leading scorer on the team for the series. And this is a guy who was a failed summer league point guard only a year ago. Look where he's come. So, yeah, Stuart, you stole mine outside of Embiid, which we all knew Embiid was going to dominate this series. That's not a surprise. Maybe he should have dominated a little bit more, but, you know, conditioning, like you said, was an issue. So, yeah, no, Shake Milton is my my choice as well. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but he, I believe he scored in double digits all uh, three, all four games. Um, like I guess I correct me if I'm wrong, but um, <clears throat> the kid, he had a rough start in game one. I don't think he scored until like what the third quarter or something. But once he got going, he was good. <clears throat> and no, he didn't do well defensively against Kemba Walker or any of the you know perimeter scorers on Boston. But let's be fair, who did this series? Nobody did. Uh, so even Josh Richardson struggled and Matisse Seibel struggled. So let's, By the way, you're let's, correct, Lucas. He did score in double figures. The, his worst game was game one with 13 points. So, yeah, no, the, the guy, the kid can score. Now, I might, after seeing him in the bubble and seeing, you know, after he had his cool down time after his hot streak before the hiatus, he's cooled down, down a little bit. I might have to revise my opinion whether or not he can be what Markel Fultz is supposed to be, but I think he can be a solid, you know, uh, rotational player. I think he could be a uh, 15- to 17-point scorer. I don't think he's going to get you a ton of assists. I don't think he's built like that. But having him as a secondary, you know, playmaker is fine for the Sixers. I think maybe he could be something kind of like Maybe not the microwave that Jordan Clarkson is, but you know, a similar type of player, you know, where he can he can get hot every once in a while, but he's gonna at least get you double digits most nights. So and especially once he gets more confidence. I think this series helped him build a lot of confidence and the bubble helped him build confidence. He didn't so yeah, no, I think Shake Milton was probably the only consistent player outside of Embiid in terms of scoring and scoring rather efficiently too, if I remember correctly. So um yeah, my, my choice is Shake Milton outside of Joel Embiid because obviously Embiid was going to dominate this series. Yeah, I think both of you make some, some really good points there. Shake definitely deserves a lot of credit for what he did this series. Um, like you both said, defense is still an issue. He's really not a good defender, but he, he competed really hard this series. He had some decent possessions on Kimba Walker, even if Walker uh, normally got the better of him. So I, I do think Milton deserves a lot of credit for how hard he played and how efficiently he shot. Uh, I don't think he's a point guard. I don't think he's going to be the lead playmaker on a winning team. I think this series is a good example of that. But he is an elite shooter, and that's something the Sixers need long-term. He's going to be in the rotation next season and the season after that. I think he's definitely a long-term piece, even, even if maybe our expectations after February and March were a little bit inflated. But uh, beyond Shake and beyond Embiid, who we've all said is kind of the obvious answer here, I, I do think Josh Richardson deserves maybe more credit than he's getting. Again, not in a perfect series. No one really had a perfect series. Uh, they got swept, obviously. But Richardson, I do think his defense deserves a lot of credit. He was probably the most consistent defender on the team this series. Um, and, Embiid had some real uh, lulls on that end. 
Uh, Thibel as well had some, you know, trouble spots. But I, I think Richardson was consistently good on Tatum, who's much bigger than him. I think he deserves a lot of credit there, especially in games three and four. Uh, he did some really good work on Kemba as well. And offensively, Richardson had some pretty solid games, some pretty efficient games. Uh, he's not a point guard. He's never going to be an efficient playmaker. He's not going to create for others at a high level if you know, you're know you asking him to do that, like the Sixers have all season. You're, you're just not going to get it. That's not who he is. But as far as you know, shooting, spacing the floor occasionally, uh, slashing to the rim, he had some really solid games in that respect. And I, I don't think this was you know, the dreadful, terrible, not good at all series that some are making it out to be for Richardson. I think he's a guy who, if he's around next year, can still contribute uh, to winning. I think with more playmaking on the perimeter, he would be in a much more comfortable spot. I, I don't think he's someone the Sixers should actively, you know, look to trade unless they're getting real value in return. Like, I think he's still a really solid player, and his defense was huge this series, especially with Ben out. So I, I do think he deserves some pretty significant props for that. We've been very positive for a team that just got swept. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, hey, it, it wasn't all bad. I, I mean, I yeah. think the the general outlook of the fan base right now is pretty soundly doom and gloom. That's pretty much been my outlook. If you, you read my recent article, I haven't been the most positive. No, uh, no, no, you have not. The most positive, you know arbiter of Sixers takes but in the end there, there were some positives and we're going to move on here to talk about Brett Brown uh, it seems at this point that his future his days are numbered here in Philadelphia what are your thoughts Stuart on how he coached this series and maybe what he did well versus what he did poorly what he did well is I would say is making adjustments he didn't get stubborn, which he also did. I will congratulate him against Toronto when he was going against Nick Nurse. And as he, and Nick Nurse was just named the NBA Coach of the Year. And I don't believe the Sixers lost their playoff series last year because he outcoached Brett Brown. I think Brad Stevens outcoached Brown overall in this one, as he always does. But he was not afraid to change things. Matisse Thibault was torched, he played him less. He's changed the defensive way they guarded the pick and roll. He switched up lineups. He saw Milton was struggling at the point. He put in how put in Howell Neto to what effect we can debate, but at least he felt like he wanted to get a real point guard out there. And that's all they had since Trey Burke missed her 25 points to, against uh, the Clippers today. He had cut earlier. And he was not afraid to be stuck in ways and go down with, this is what I believe, I don't care what happens. He did show flexibility. That is the good part. The bad part, <laughs> I think it's rather obvious. The, the team didn't buy into his concepts. He put in a lineup that space-wise, even the players admitted afterward, did not work. They, in the cl clutch, when it counted at the end of games, and let's not forget, three of the four games came down to the final couple minutes. Uh, the offense was like game seven against Toronto. They just kind of ran around like a chicken with their head cut off. There was no direction. Uh, defensively, the wings uh, got torched, as they have every year, despite on other teams somehow, you know, 
J.J. Reddick survives, somehow they can fit other guys who are defensive liabilities, like a Trey Burke with us, suddenly other teams find a way to be able to play them a lot. So it's, it's you know, the good and bad of Brett Brown. He wasn't afraid to uh, make to change things up, but what he changes things up with don't always work. And I'm not sure he had the full confidence of his team in what he was doing. And if they don't buy into the program, that's any sport, as we know, the players don't buy in, it's, it's tough to win. So you bring up some good points there, Stuart. And yeah, he did make some adjustments. But back to the lineup, he made one lineup change for game two. Yeah, game two was a blowout. But you got to stick with it more than one game because, as I said earlier, Matisse Thibault is a rookie. He's going to have a bad game. And that was just a bad game for everybody that game, too. So I think he should have kept with it. He didn't trust it. And, you know, we said he uh, – um, sorry, Brown said that he was going to sink or sail without Horford. He definitely sunk with him. And that's that stubbornness that we talk, that you've talked about. He stuck with Al Horford even though he knew it was a bad thing. Bad matchup here. And the other thing that I want to bring up is this, at least, okay, if you played anything beyond middle school basketball, if you played high school basketball, you know if the ball goes in the post, the person, the people that are on the strong side of the ball need to move so that when, if their defenders decide to go down and double team, they can get to an open spot so that the ball can get kicked back out to them so that they can get an open shot, right? We all know this. It's basic basketball 101. That being said, that barely happened with the Sixers this season, series. I saw it for maybe one or two quarters in a couple of games. Did not happen consistently. Brown needs to know. I, I, you know, having the best post-up player in the league, you would think that Brown would know how to get his players to have off-ball movement. It didn't happen. There was barely any cuts. except and Maybe it's just because Embiid's not as nearly as good as the passer as Ben. But, you know, and we'll get to Ben here in a second. But. My point still remains is that there wasn't – the offense was stat, was motionless. And, you know, this, is, this isn't the first time that we've seen a motionless uh, offense in the, in the playoffs. Last year we saw it when Ben Simmons was stuck in the dunker spot uh, in the Toronto series. So it was motionless offense. He didn't stick with the changes, lineup change he tried. He should have, in my opinion. Because at least you have a chance of guarding at least you know one of those two dynamic perimeter players with Thibel. So honestly, yeah, he tried some things, but overall, I'm, I wasn't impressed. And like you said, Stuart, the biggest thing is that the team—it was very clear the team was not buying into what Brett Brown was selling, and that's probably been apparent since Jimmy Butler left last year. So that's 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 my opinion. Yeah, I think both points from good good points from both of you there. Um, I've never been one to really pile on Brett Brown. I I think at this point there's really nothing left to do but fire him. So I, I very much understand why the Sixers are going to go in a different direction. But as far as this series goes, I I don't think there's much Brett could have done. He was dealt a really bad hand. I know we've said that consistently, but it, it's true, and we just need to bring it up consistently. He really didn't have any options. There were only two playable bench players essentially in this series. Then that was Matisse who had his share of struggles and was virtually non-existent on offense and Burks who, despite all the good he did in the seeding games, 
shot like 30% this series. This, this was not a really strong series from Alec Burks. And as we all know, he's one of the very few players on the roster who can really create his own shots uh, consistently. And the Horford thing, I, I don't know if there's a coach in basketball who would have, you know, had Horford on the contract that he's on and, and benched him this series, you know. I, I get that maybe you want to stick with Feibel. He's a better matchup defensively, but Feibel is probably the only player worse offensively than Al on this roster right now who's getting consistent playing time. And, you know, it is Al Horford. You know, at some point you just have to play the hand you're dealt and live with the consequences. There's really not much else to do. He had seven playable players. So I really can't find, you know, it within me to criticize Brown a ton for this series. I don't think this loss is on him. The Sixers were competitive in a few of these games. Um, and it just comes to execution down the stretch. And the Sixers don't have players who can execute down the stretch. Uh, they don't have guys who can, you know, get to the rim consistently. They don't have, you know, smart passers. They don't have guys who can create their own shot when the offense stalls. And that's more on the front office than it is on Brett Brown. So, you know, it is what it is. I, I hope he lands with another team once the Sixers fire him. I think he will. I think he's a good coach. But, uh, you know, my one maybe nitpick this series was that I think it took them a little bit too long to adjust the uh, defensive scheme as far as keeping Embiid as far back as they did in the first couple of games. Uh, it, it took them a while to, you know, kind of adjust that. And, you know, I think Kimba and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and such had a few more open threes than they should have. But uh, the personnel defensively for the Sixers just wasn't good. They had Shake Milton trying to chase Kimba around screens, you know. Uh, You know, Jalen Brown being guarded by Al Horford. And, you know, you're just not going to – that's not really on Brett. That's on the front office. So I don't really have any super, like, profound criticisms of him this series. I I think it just is what it is. The Sixers were the worst team on paper, and and Boston exploited the matchups that they had. And that's how it goes. Would you guys both agree that if this had been a normal – setting that the last two games were at the Wells Fargo Center with the normal Sixer crowd, it would be 2-2 right now, and we'd be discussing, can the Sixers pull this out? I don't think it would be 2-2. I think it would be 3-1. I don't think they would have won both games. And honestly, I'm not even sure if they would have won either one, to be honest with you, because like I said, well, I think we're about to get into this. Ben Simmons isn't there. And that, you know, that kind of puts a major handicap on Philly moving forward. Yeah. We'll get into that for in a minute. I, I think one important <laughs> thing to bring up with respect to what you said, Stuart, is I think games one, three, and four, the Sixers were pretty close up until the end of the third quarter or the fourth quarter, and they kind of fell apart late. And I think that, again, is just personnel. They don't really have a closer, someone you can consistently go to down the stretch on the perimeter to create out of the pick and roll or to just create an isolation. Uh, Embiid did what he could, but you know, you don't have someone like Jimmy Butler there to carry the load late, and you're going to falter. I think the Celtics just have better personnel down the stretch, and I'm not sure that really changes, you know, in the Wells Fargo Center, as, as beneficial as the crowd has been all season. Uh, when when you can't, you know, get the offense moving uh, in, down the stretch, you're just not going to score enough points to win basketball games, and that that's what really plagued Philly this series. So while I do think the Sixers may have won a game or two even this series, if, if it was a regular you know, home-away series, uh, I, I don't think the difference was too dramatic uh, at the end. Yeah, and you know, I, I brought up Ben Simmons, and we're going to go move on to our next point here. 
based off of what we saw from Boston this series, and I'm going to ask you first, uh, Stuart, do you think, how could Ben Simmons have impacted this, this uh, series if he had played? Well, Chris, like you said, three of the four games went down to the end. Ben Simmons obviously would have been able to help on the defensive end. You could have had him guarding Jalen Brown instead of Al Horford, which would have helped. He could have helped with the rebounding. If you remember, they were pretty good the last couple games, but the first two, just on sheer hustle, the Celtics were getting a lot of offensive rebounds. Simmons is a good rebounder. He would have helped there. He would have pushed the pace. They're obviously... Don't fast break without Simmons because the Sixers management decided the only other point guard that uh, the Sixers should have for this uh, bubble thing was Howell Neto for whatever reason, which is why he played as much as he did despite not doing a heck of a lot. Uh, offensively, he still would have, you know, he still can't shoot or won't shoot. Uh, he would have been, I don't know how much of a help he would have been. Boston usually shuts him down. He would have been who? Who would he have been in, in, instead of? Uh, who would have been at, sitting on the bench? Milton. He can shoot outside and spread the floor. Richardson. He can shoot outside and spread the floor. I don't know how much of a help he would have been on offense. He just would have been another guy getting in Embiid's way. Al Horford can do that just fine by himself. It, it would have, been, but it's at three of the. I would say this: when Harris went down in Game Four. And it went from a close game to a, like, I think they went on a 16-2 to two run, the Celtics. Simmons might have been able to hold things together until Harris came back and the guys kind of turned it on at the end. So one of those things where my opinion is, Chris, is like you said about the home court advantage. It would have helped. Maybe they would have won a game, but Boston was still the better team. Yeah, I think you're spot on, Stuart obviously Ben changes this series. He's a top 20, 25 player in the league, in my view. Obviously, that increases your chances of winning. If Ben's playing this series, I think it's much more competitive. As we've said multiple times already on this episode, a lot of these games were pretty close until the end. Ben fixes a lot of the Sixers' defensive issues. You know, he's probably playing 40-plus minutes a game this series. Um, you know, you stick him on Tatum, then you have Richardson tailing Kimba instead of Shake. You can put Shake on Marcus Smart, who's obviously the weakest link uh, for Boston's perimeter attack. He solves a lot of issues on defense. Uh, you know, you're one person deeper. You have Al, Matisse, and Burks coming off the bench. You have three capable bench pieces instead of two, which is nice, especially when Boston doesn't have a ton uh, coming off of their bench as well. So, yeah, of course Ben helps you. Pushes the tempo on offense. The Sixers pacing was really weird this series, largely because Ben was out. Um, I don't think I don't know if he changes the final outcome. I, I still would have predicted Boston, you know, in, in six maybe it had had Ben been healthy for the series. But I, in the end, the Sixers team is pretty poorly constructed with or without Ben, and I don't think he is. You know, I don't think he really changes the final outcome. But he does help. I do think the Sixers missed him a great deal. And we probably are having a very different conversation about the Sixers' future. Even if it has similar final conclusions, I don't think we are being quite as drastic or extreme as we are right now if Ben was healthy this series. 
because the Sixers would look better. I, I think we get lost in kind of the three-point conversation with Simmons a lot, but he's just a really good player, and he does a lot of things that are really valuable to the Sixers, and a lot of those things were missing this series. So I, I do think it helps quite a bit if we have him on the floor. So I'm actually going <clears> to <throat> make a, take the bolder approach. I think the Sixers might have would have taken this game to seven series, this series to seven games, and honestly there could have been a real chance that they could have won. Let me tell you why. Ben Simmons is the best on-ball defender to guard Jason Tatum in the NBA. I believe this season Tatum shot 29%. I'd have to double-check, but it was a very low percentage when Simmons was guarding him this season. The worst uh, versus anybody else in the league. So that's to consider. We also still have to consider that uh, Gordon Hayward's going to miss the rest of this, this series, w- would have still missed the series even when with Ben in. So that's another perimeter person that you don't have to worry about. And I also think Ben Simmons would help a lot in our transition game, which was non-existent without Ben. There was no transition game without Ben. And I think with Ben, you have a transition game that they could definitely tap into against Boston. So I think there's that too. And then he obviously helps the ball movement because he's one of the best passers in the NBA as well. So I think this series could have gone seven games. I'm not going to say that they would have won for sure, but I think they would have had a puncher's a much better chance of winning versus where they obviously where they ended up. Yeah, it's an interesting take. And, 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I think you you make good points, Lucas. I I do think it's worth noting that the Sixers, despite all their flaws, were pretty much neck and neck with Miami and Indiana all season. They aren't they aren't a bad team per se. And they do have a lot of talent. And Ben is a very talented player. So I, I do think he makes this a more competitive series. I don't know if it goes seven. And again, I don't think the Sixers win. But like you said, he's probably the best defender, uh, defensive answer to Jason Tatum, maybe in the NBA. So that, that obviously changes the dynamics of Boston's offense. And you play Al Horford less. You get more uh, transition opportunities. You get more turnovers on defense. Uh, so, you know, it, it does definitely change how this series looks. Um, but I, I do think in uh, maybe in a very strange way, it, it's probably good that the Sixers got swept and that they got their butts kicked because they need to change and they need to change a lot. And I think this series really drove that point home. Um, you wrote about it, Lucas, that they can't use Ben as a shield. They shouldn't use that as an excuse to, you know, give everybody, everybody their jobs back and to not change. That, that can't happen. But... Uh, obviously, Ben helps. That's just how it is. He's too good not to help. So we kind of already answered the next question. Could the Sixers have won if Ben was in the series? Both of you guys say no. I say possibly. But I don't think we really need to beat that one into the ground. So I think we're going to go to our next one. And, uh, and Chris, I think before we get to that next one, I do want to say this. I think you're absolutely right that this series needed to happen for a major change to come. And... I think we both agree. I think everybody agrees. Uh, Brett's gone, and honestly, I think, and we'll probably get into this later. I'm pretty sure we will. Um, El Brand has his job security should really be in question as well. But let's go ahead and move on, Chris. I believe this next point is yours. Take it away. Yeah. So we are going to continue with our Sixers Celtics talk, and we're just going to go down the positional list here. We're going to talk about the guards, the forwards, the centers. Uh, the benches and the coaches. We're going to give a grade to each for both sides, Sixers and Celtics. 
So we'll start with you, Stuart, and we'll start with the guards. What grade would you give the Sixers guards? We'll say Shake Milton and Josh Richardson. And what grade would you give the Celtics guards? Obviously, Kimball Walker and Marcus Smart. You're just talking about the starters now, not the, not every yes. guard. Yes. I was right, first thought was like, okay, which which uh, the Sixers started guards was my first thought. <laughs> Shake and Josh Richardson have been used as three at some point during the season. I don't know if they're – you can even call them really – I guess they started as guards and played guard in the series, but they're not – Either one pure guards. I would give them C plus. I mean, Josh Richardson tried. He had some good moments. He had some, you know, Josh Richardson moments where you're you're wondering what the heck he's thinking. But uh, he he was okay uh, playing. I'll give him like the C, and I give Shake Milton a B. You're talking about all basically a rookie, a guy who got overwhelmed in summer league guy who's up was a 54th pick of the draft two years ago so for him to come in be a solid contributor yeah his defense was not very good which considering he has those long arms i'm not sure why that's an indictment of the sixers player development staff which is another story entirely uh so i would give him a b so combined i'll give him a c plus uh celtics guards they were fine. You know, for what they are, I'll give them a B minus. Honestly, Kemba Walker scored 50, 60 points in us another with Charlotte. He had a nice last couple games, but until then he was shut down. Jason Tatum had a couple gotten foul trouble, had a couple games where he didn't shoot that great. Jalen Brown had a couple games where he was in and out. They were good. They were good players who made shots when they needed, but I didn't think they played much better than normal for them. So I'd give them a B minus, honestly. So for the Sixers starting guards of Richardson and Milton, I'm going to give them a, a B because they kind of played where I expected them to play. Average in the low, low to mid-teens. You know, you know, Richardson did what he did on defense. Uh, Shake Milton did what he did on offense. They didn't wow at all, but they, they didn't majorly mess up either so i think a b b minus would be good for them for the celtics guards they played exactly where they wanted to be uh kemba walker played at an all-star level for pretty much the whole series and marcus smart was still a shutdown defender so i gotta give them a b plus because they they won obviously so they gotta kind of have to get a better grade and they played at their level of production so that's where i ha- are with the guards yeah, I, I think both of you make fair points. I might go a little bit lower, maybe like a C, just because of how the series went and the overall success of this team. But uh, you, I think you said it really well, Stuart, where Josh Richardson has kind of those, like, what-are-you-doing moments where he just makes these really baffling decisions. He's really not the, the best decision-maker out there. Uh, but when you can parse him, we kind of separate him from those like very egregious individual moments. He he is a really solid player. His defense was really important this series. Again, I think he was the most consistent Sixers defender in this series, which uh, given where the rest of the team was, I, I think is pretty uh, notable. So, you know, C, pretty solid average. Uh, it's hard to go much higher when they got swept. But like you said, Shake shot pretty well. Josh played really solid defense um, against some very tough matchups in Kimba and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. So, 
you know, I, I don't think a C is a bad grade. So I, that's that's where my gut is at. But I, I can certainly understand going higher. And we're going to move on from that and go to the forwards. I guess in this scenario, we are going to pit Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum against Tobias Harris and Al Horford, which is probably a pretty lopsided uh, comparison. But I'll let you you take it away, Stuart. What are your grades for those those two combinations? Well, that's, that's a mismatch in itself when you just said those four names. Uh, for the Sixers, I will say... D minus Al Horford didn't do what he's supposed to do. He played poor defensively, even when he was in for Embiid. His defense wasn't that great. He got in the way on offense. And Tobias Harris shot 33% for the first three games. Game four, he, he shot better, but guess what? Game four, the series is over. It doesn't matter. He's a $180 million guy. He's the guy who's supposed to step up. He's the one who's supposed to be the leader. And he didn't shoot well. It, by the way, he didn't shoot well in last year's playoffs either. So I don't know why we're surprised. What's the old Einstein uh, quote? Uh, insanity is trying to do the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Uh, Tobias Harris with wasn't good in last year's playoffs. He wasn't good in this year's playoffs. So I'll give him a combined a D minus. Brown and uh, Tatum, they did what they had to do. I'll give them an A. They shot. They defended. Uh, they did what and the result was a sweep. They outplayed the Sixers forward so badly that they won every game. So, yeah, um... In terms of the Sixers, I got uh, Al Horford gets an F for this series. Tobias Harris gets a, a D, so D minus seems about right. Um, for in terms of the Celtics, uh, I'm gonna give the the duo an A. Jason Tatum and uh, Jalen Brown played like the All Star caliber players they were supposed to be. So I, I don't really think there's much need to discuss just how dominant those two were and how bad the Sixers duo was. I think it's clear and simple. And I want to add this little note. I'm, I just I have the Toronto game, the Brooklyn series, playing in the background here, and the Toronto's bench just scored a hundred points in this game. Uh, that wow. was just yeah, right, hundred points, a bench. The Raptors won 150 to 122. By the way, just I know it's not our agenda, but Boston swept a Sixers team that many thought could make the NBA championship at the beginning of the year. And I don't think anyone gives them a chance against Toronto. I think Toronto's going to whack them pretty bad. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a five game or at best six, six games before Toronto knocks them out. Yeah, without Gordon Hayward, they don't have much of a chance, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I think the Hayward injury hurts. Um, I think with Hayward, it's probably a pretty competitive series because I, I do think I trust Boston's shot makers more down the stretch. I think Jason Tatum's a really special player. But uh, at this point, I do think you know the Raptors probably have the edge. As far as grades for the forwards, though, for me, I'm really shocked that neither of you said F because I really don't know I, I to go higher than that. I said F for Al Horford. Yeah, I mean, I think Tobias was just as like egregiously bad, though. Honestly, I I, I think it's a, a strong F for both of them. Um, 
you know, beyond Al's like primal yell after that Tatum post up in game one, or was it game two, where he missed the layup and then got the put back and just let out that scream, which was an amazing moment. I, I very much appreciate him for that. Um, it's made better by the fact that he missed the initial shot because that's a very Al Horford moment. But other than that, I mean, it was a pretty rough series all around for Al. Um, and then Tobias just, he didn't hit a three until game four, which is really remarkable when you're paying him $180 million to be a floor spacing, you know, power forward, small forward who can create off the dribble, supposedly. Uh, not that he did a ton of that this series. So, uh, I mean, I think it's an F, an F minus maybe, if, if we want to be uh, real harsh. Uh, so I, I can't, I can't imagine, you know, going higher than that personally I think I gotta stick with the F because I think they were easily the two most disappointing players on the Sixers um, and then with Boston I'll say an A as well you know Tatum and Brown were conversely the Celtics best players in this series and the Celtics you know won four games to none so I think that speaks for itself so I'll go with an A for the Celtics forwards and a strong F for the Sixers forwards and then moving on we're going to talk about the centers here that would pit Joel Embiid against Daniel Tice. I think as lopsided a matchup here as it is in real life. Stuart, what are your thoughts there? Well, obviously, I will say an A for Embiid. He showed up every game. He tried. He tried to pass out when they doubled him. He did defensively. He did what he could. At least what he was supposed to do under Brett Brown's defense, which is another story. He obviously cared. I'm not going to give him an A-plus because you could tell at the end of games he still needs to get a little bit better shape. He was in good shape considering he'd been inactive for four and a half months. And we all know a week and he in the past would like be somehow instantly get out of shape. So I will give him credit for that. But he could still get into better shape. And you know what, though? I will give Tice a B, grading on a different scale. Embiid's, you know, an all-star. Probably got some guy who, the best center in the NBA, most people will tell you. Tice is a role player who played in Europe, who caught the Sixers, signed Horford, was thrust into the starting role. He whines a heck of a lot for the about the foul calls, which was driving me crazy. I can't believe the refs didn't just toss him and say, be quiet. But for a 6'8 guy who's a fringe NBA player, he played pretty well. It's amazing how, look at him, Jalen Brown. Guys seem to get better playing with the Celtics. No one at the Sixers you ever seen since Robert Covington <laughs> seems to get better. He, I mean, he did what he could. I think he did his job, so I'll give him a big. So, for me and Embiid, it's hard because, like you said, he got tired at the end of games. His decision-making wasn't always the best, and especially in game one, he wasn't as dominant as he needed to be. So, I'm going to say A-, minus, but I was very close to saying B+. Plus. But that being said, I think you're right on with Tice. I think that he deserves a lot of credit because he, I mean, yeah, no, he, he gave up, what, he's 6'8", so he gave up like four or five inches to Embiid. And then on top of that, you know, I think he played Embiid as well as anybody could, especially when Embiid's going to, you know, be dominant inside. You know, I think he did as well as anybody could. And, you know, 
It's not like he made a lot of mistakes. I think he just, you know, obviously offensively he doesn't need to take threes, but I, I'd give him a B minus for the series. Yeah, I think those are all fair grades. I'll probably follow along similar lines. I think Joe's probably an A minus for me. Um, I don't think he was perfect this series. I think defensively, again, he had some really uh, rough moments on that end where he wasn't as engaged or as active as he needed to be. Part of that was just Brett Brown's scheme, especially in the first couple of games, um, holding him as far back as he was in the pick and roll. But there are moments where Joe fell asleep on defense this series that really hurt Philadelphia, especially with how outmatched they were at other positions. So I, I do think he deserves a bit of criticism for that. But offensively, again, he was far and away the, the most beneficial sixer on that end, the most productive and the most consistent. Um, you said he wasn't as dominant as he needed to be game one, Lucas. That's true. I, I do think that's a fair point. But in general, he was still really solid that game. He was really solid in all the games. Um, he had some costly turnovers down the stretch of game three. So not perfect. But considering what the Sixers' other options were and considering the fact that he got virtually no help from anyone else, um, I, I think he deserves just a ton of credit for fighting as hard as he did and for doing what he did under such... Uh, poor circumstances so I'll, I'll give him an a minus definitely the highest grade i'll be handing out for the sixers um, in this exercise and then for tice we all knew this was a really poor matchup for him he's massively undersized he's really a solid defender um just in a general vacuum but against Embiid, he was never really going to be able to uh, hold up one-on-one -on -one. but like you said stewart he did his job he hit some threes in the latter games on offense he, he did play his role as well as he could have. Um, foul trouble was an issue at times, but that's just the product of playing Embiid as a fairly skinny six foot eight center. So, you know, C plus, solid, not good, not great, not bad, uh, but respectable. And we're going to move on to the benches here. Stuart, I'll let you go first again. How would you grade the Sixers second unit um, versus the Celtics? Yeah. Well, comparing them to the Celtics bench or just overall how they play? Just grades for the bench benches overall. Overall, the bench, I will say D. Right. It, the bench changed, of course, at, with every game. Matisse started a game, and Horford came off the bench, and then Matisse came off the bench and when Horford started for the last couple. Uh, bench didn't do anything of any significance. They didn't defend well. They didn't shoot well. We all know that famous uh, in, in Game 3 when Brett Brown put in uh, Howell Neto instead of Burks, and they, they he was minus 14 in nine minutes, and, and what, what had been a close game was now a big Celtics lead. So um, Alec Burks had his moments, which were few and far between, but at least he was creating some offense. Uh, Furkan was a bust. Uh, Neto didn't help out at all. And that Matisse helped on the defensive end, not anything on the offensive end, which is not surprising. And again, as Chris pointed out, he's a rookie in his first playoff series. You should not expect much. And outside of that, I don't think Mike Scott may have gotten like a few minutes here and there. And the, the bench basically was negligible. And I pointed out 
in my story for the Sixer Sense this this uh, that came out today, the summer of blunders. The Sixers were veteran. This is a veteran team. These aren't a bunch of kids. They only had three rookies on the whole roster, and one Celtics had seven other players are rookies, and their bench. I'm going to say was C. Uh, if you if you include the bench with Marcus Smart as a starter, uh, they only scored nine points today. By the way, it wasn't like the bench from the Celtics was any great shakes uh, today either. If you count Smart as a starter, I mean Grant Williams was okay. Romeo Langford was okay. You know, Enos Cantor had his moments. He actually played pretty well for Enos Cantor. They were, you know, they gave him a blow. And they weren't minus 14 when they were in the game. So they okay as C for me. So for me, the the Sixers bench is, I, I, you know what, I'm just going to give them an F. Like, even though Matisse Thibel played admirably, it just, it didn't, they didn't make an impact. Like, they didn't make a strong enough impact to do anything in this series. So I'm going to give them an F. I just... I didn't feel good about our bench. And like Chris said, there was only two really playable players and both were inefficient offensively and only one was good defensively. And even he had his problems. So, you know, they get enough for me. And the Celtics bench, like, I think a C is a pretty, they played average. And, you know, they're not a strong bench to begin with. So, especially with Marcus Smart in the starting five. So, yeah, no, a C seems proper for them. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat uh, with you and, and Stewart um, with regard to the Sixers. I think Stewart said it best when the bench was pretty much negligible for, for really both teams, but especially the Sixers. You know, Feibel had his moments defensively, but as someone who was supposed to be like the number one answer to Jason Tatum, um, you know, he really didn't do much. He was pretty much absent on offense this series. Again, he's a rookie, as you both said. It, it was really kind of unfair to have the expectations that we did. But given, you know, what else the Sixers had, uh, he, he needed to do more of the series in order to give them a chance, and he didn't. And Burks was really not that great. He, he had a pretty solid game four, but he was an inefficient scorer. We all know the, the lows that can come with his highs, I think. So this was definitely a low for him this series. Um, and then, you know, Howell Neto, on Mike, Scott, all got, you know, some minutes here and there and didn't do much with him. As someone who stood up for Neto all season and as someone who thinks he's a really, you know, you know, he's a solid backup point guard, I don't think this was maybe the best example of his, his talent this series. So, yeah, I think like a D, D minus, maybe even an F is, you know, a fair range for the Sixers bench. And, you know, same for the Celtics bench, maybe a D-plus, C-minus. Um, once Hayward went out and once Smart got moved to the starting unit, Boston really doesn't have a ton, um, you know, in, in those reserves roles. Um, Brad Wanamaker didn't do a ton this series. Um, Romeo Langford, Grant Williams, Simi Ogilvy, all those guys aren't players you want playing, you know, against like a Toronto in this next series. If I was Boston, I'd be really worried about how thin that bench is. But, uh Ennis Cantor had his moments. He did a pretty good job on Embiid just because of how the Sixers offense works. But he, even he wasn't, you know, anything special. So I think maybe a D compared to a C- minus for Sixers and Celtics. I don't think this was uh, much of anything special. And we'll move on now to the coaches. 
Brett Brown, Brad Stevens, uh, Stewart with an audible sigh already. I'll let you uh, take that one away. Before I take that, I want to ask uh, you to a little trivia question. Outside of the starting lineup for the Sixers, do you know who the highest paid player on the team is? The normal starting lineup, the one that started uh, was when counting Sims, the one that started most of the year. It's Mike Scott, uh, right? Mike Scott. Yeah, Mike Scott. He's the highest highest paid player outside of the starting five. And what was he? Doesn't Didn't play in a bunch of the games. If he did, he played a couple minutes. So payroll management. Just, just wanted to yeah. throw that out. Not All great. Right. Coaching. <laughs> Brett Brown. F. Is the only thing I can think of. <laughs> and what did he do positive? His offense was stagnant. His defense was sliced to ribbons. His sub-rotations were nonsensical. I mean, he'd start Alec Burks one game as a backup point. Then he'd put in Howell Neto as the next one. And all of a sudden, Burks would disappear Matisse was started one game, played 33 minutes. All of a sudden, the next game, he played, I think, eight off the bench. There was no rotation. People didn't know their roles. I didn't know what the heck their their roles would be, watching every minute of pretty much of every game. You and Glenn Robinson both. Oh, well, well we should mention when, <laughs> when Glenn Robinson knew his role this time. Unfortunately, it was sitting on the bench hurt, which I think is actually something we – also didn't help the Sixers with because that he is also a good defensive uh, perimeter player who they missed out on. But, hey, yeah. Hang on, Stuart, one second. I got I got a butt in. You were just saying last segment that Brett Brown made all these adjustments and all this stuff, yeah, and now you and, think all... and, and now you you're bashing him for it. So I'm I'm confused. Where do you stand, Stuart? You asked me a question. <laughs> Quote, give me the positives and negatives of Brett Brown. The positive was that he tried different things. The negative, unfortunately, is all the things he tried backfired badly. But You're he right. did try at least. I'll give him credit for that. So I'll give him an F+. Plus. He tried. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And if you notice, I don't know if you guys did it, but this last year, after the loss to Toronto, and Embiid defended him and said he should be back. Embiid this time said, "He's not the he's not, GM. I'm not, he's not the GM." <laughs> Josh Richardson said there wasn't any accountability on this team, which was a problem, which was quite obvious. And you know, Tobias he, Harris refused to answer the question. He said right. he needed to look at himself as a leader. I thought Brett looked really nice in the uh, shirt today, though. His, his sartorial splendor was good. Yeah, yeah. Polos work for Brett Brown. They do. Yeah, they do look good. And for Brad Stevens, I will give him an A. I don't remember any sitting there watching the games. What the heck is he doing? I like how he sent a message early this game when Tice had a foul within 30 seconds. He yanked him, said, nope, we're not, you know, you got to stop that. Uh, when Gordon Hayward, he's not Ben Simmons, but Hayward's a key starter for them. When he went out, he just threw in Marcus Smart, tightened the rotation, and the Celtics really didn't miss much of a beat, honestly. Uh, 
he handled his loss of his one of his top players very well. He was always calm. He obviously ran the offense that he wanted. He and he as it worked, he kept doing it and doing it. He hunted the defensive liability, whoever it was, Shake or Furkan or Horford, made sure those guys were shooting. Uh, I can't think of anything he did badly, so I will give Stevens an A. So, yeah, Stuart, I'm going to say that Brett Brown gets an F+. Plus. And he might have been able to get a D for me if he kept Matisse Eibel on the starting five, but... You know, he didn't, so that's that's what it is. Brown did not – he did not have an efficient offense. The defense struggled. Um, there isn't really much to say. Um, I think if this is Brown's last game, you know, and like Chris said earlier, I think he gets another job. And I think it should – I don't think it's going to be on a team that's contending right now. I think it's going to be on a team. But you guys, you guys figure out which team I'm talking about later in this podcast. Um but for Brad Stevens, Stewart, a like you said, and I like his big man rotation because purely based on matchups, because he played all, all uh, I think all four of his centers. He played, um, you know, he started with Daniel Tice, and his Cantor got runs in certain games. Uh, Grant Williams got run in certain games, and uh, Robert Williams got run in certain games. It just really was the ma- matchup dependent, and I think. Stevens was masterful in taking advantage of ma- uh, matchups, both offensively and defensively. You know, there's not much he can do against uh, Embiid, but everybody else, you know, he shut down Tobias Harris. He was able to get Tatum and Brown to shut down Tobias Harris, which, I mean, Tobias is a solid offensive player. I think we can all agree that. And, I, you know, I think part of Harris's problems was the defensive pressure that Tatum and uh, Brown were putting on. So I got to give, uh, you know, Brad Stevens an A. Yeah, so I, I'll stick up a little bit for Brett here. I'll give him, like, you know, a D-plus maybe. Uh, not a great series. I do think he was slow to adjust on defense, as Homer. I said earlier in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do think, you know, there were some issues with how he handled the the two to three playable bench pieces, maybe. But again, like, what else was he supposed to do? You know, this roster is just a mess. None of the pieces fit. He doesn't have a single reliable playmaker on the perimeter. Uh, you know, with Ben out, the defensive rotations were going to be a mess either way. Chris, what happened to Hau Neto being a reliable playmaker? I said two to three. He would be number three. <laughs> but anyways, that, again, that if Neto is your third most reliable player off the bench, you're probably in trouble. So that's what I I've mean, been saying all season long. <laughs> well, he hasn't been the third most reliable player off the bench all season. Anyways, <laughs> there's really not much Brett could have done this series. I don't think that would have changed the outcome. I think the Sixers were just outmatched at every possible point, offensively, defensively. They really didn't have any considerable advantages outside of Embiid. And, uh, I mean, I don't know what another coach would have done with this team down Ben Simmons that would have really changed much. Like, do I think this team, as presently constructed with, like, Mike Budenholzer, would have won this series? No, I don't. So, I mean, D-plus, obviously he made mistakes. But it's, it's again, like, what was he supposed to do? You know, you're dealt a bad hand. You got you to gotta roll with it. So, I'll give Brad Stevens an A, too, because he's Brad Stevens, you know, the Celtics 
obviously he didn't have any issues in that front, but uh, it is what it is. I, I don't think Brett deserves a, the amount of criticism maybe that he's getting. I think he's part of the problem, but he's definitely not the problem, which is something we'll probably talk about uh, later in the podcast. So we're going to go ahead and move on to the offseason because I'm pretty sure that's what everybody wants to talk about at this point. To forget this series, forget that it ever happened, but learn from what it. What series? Exactly. Exactly. I don't know what, you, what we're talking about, but yeah. what we were just talking we're about. We're not going to talk about the offseason because, let's face it, the Sixers offseason since Sam Hinkie has taken over has been one of the most fun parts about their, you know, following <laughs> them. Let's, let's be real. So I guess... For this offseason, to start off, what do you guys think should be the priority of the Sixers going into this offseason? Stuart? Uh, collecting resignations of uh, basketball <laughs> operations staff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. Yes. No, I mean, you're not. Okay, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but go on, Stuart. Was that, was that all you wanted to say? <laughs> well, the rest is pretty obvious. They need players who can pass the ball. They have need players who can shoot the ball. They need players who can make shots more outside of five feet of the basket who are not named Embiid or Simmons. The, pro- the main problem with the front office is I examined their uh, moves last offseason for a six or cent story and literally the most positive move they made that helped the club was signing Norvell Pell to a two-way contract. Everything else they did, signing Horford, signing Harris, getting rid of Butler, getting rid of Reddick, getting rid of T.J. McConnell. Hey, there's a decent little point guard. Maybe he mm-hmm. would have helped. He kind of helped against Boston in the playoffs the last time. Uh, mm-hmm. Just everything, collecting, using the room exception on Mike Scott. He's the sixth highest player, and he's like the 13th guy in the rotation. Everything was wrong. What I would just do, the biggest priority is Josh Harris and Blitzer and whoever they want. Scott O'Neill walk into the office tomorrow, say, guys, security guards are taking you to your desk. Take out your personal effects and please leave. And and by the way, I actually don't think uh, Elton Brand is the main culprit here. I think he's just the front guy. A lot of these moves were made before he took over at any say, but the number one thing they have to do in the offseason is make sure someone else is running the offseason than the people who ran this, the last offseason. Yeah, I, th- I think you're spot on, Stuart. I think <laughs> the Sixers should first and foremost burn it all down, and then after that, they can kind of evaluate where they're at, hopefully with new people in charge, and see where to go from there. Uh, You know, fire Brett Brown, fire Elton Brand, fire all the main decision makers involved in that front office, and then do your best to trade Tobias Harris and Al Horford, if it's at all possible. I, I think they just need to make as many changes as possible, honestly, at this point. I mean, the Sixers just need to shake it up and do something different because the current trajectory that this team is on is not a good one and it's not really leading them anywhere uh, significant. So um, I, I think part two to that would be is they should do everything in their power to try to get Chris Paul from OKC, if that's at all possible. If the Thunder are willing to trade him, which they probably will be, 
if the Sixers can put a reasonable package together with, you know, Al Horford or Tobias Harris and some picks, you do it. hundred times out of a hundred, you try to get Chris Paul because I think that's one of the more reasonable pathways to genuine title contention that the Sixers currently have is getting Chris Paul and hoping he doesn't fall off a cliff like Al Horford did. And even if he does, I think a lesser version of Chris Paul is much more beneficial to this team than a lesser version of Al Horford. So that would be my, you know, suggestion to the front office. But, you know, just like you said, Stuart, it's time to collect some resignation letters. So I think we're all in agreement that Brett Brown needs to go. I'm... (laughs) I'm leaning towards Elton Brand going, but I, I, part of me wants to say no because he's only had two years, and I, I always tell myself give a GM three years before you make a decision on him. But you know, you had one boom year where Elton Brand did really good, and then you had one bad year of Elton Brand. I, I kind of want to give him a third year, but at the same well, time, what would he do with a third year? Because he's already handed out all of the Sixers' money to Al Horford and Harris, who we all agree are terrible contracts, two of the worst contracts I, in basketball. I, I understand really that. Nowhere for him to go. Give him a chance to correct his mistakes. Give him a chance. Yeah, okay. I guess. I, I mean, Chris I mean, gosh. I mean, yeah, Chris Paul's an option. It's not, my, the, not the guy that I would go to because, you know, I'm afraid about him falling off a cliff like Al. Um, I think I'm a little bit more worried about that, that, about that than you are. And I also don't know if he's the – I mean, maybe he can make it work. I mean, he made it work with Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan, so maybe Joel Embiid and, and Ben Simmons could benefit from him. But that's – you know, that's not my point here. You know, and you could go a lot of different ways. But let me just uh, – I'm just going to say this. I, Brett Brown definitely needs to go. Elton Brand, I'm – I'm okay if he stays. I'm okay if he doesn't stay. I understand if he leaves. Like he, there's more than enough reason for him to be fired. But I'm also not gonna like you know throw something against the wall if he stays either. You know what I mean? So, uh, not that I would throw anything against the wall. I'm not a violent person. But point point being is that I I wouldn't be upset if he stayed. I, I mean I would be discouraged. But I, I like I said I give GMs at least three years before I I fire them on the spot because you know you gotta give give them a chance to fix their mistakes. Yeah, I I do think, and part of this is on Brian Colangelo, because that's where it really started, but mm-hmm. Brian basically took one of the most promising young situations in basketball and pretty much stifled it and ran it into the ground. Like, the Harris and Horford contracts are so egregiously terrible, so, like, overwhelmingly bad, that I really don't see how you can justify keeping him around. I'm sure the Sixers' ownership will find a way to do it, uh, but there's really no way for me to say, like, yes, Elton Brand should be given another chance when this was so clearly just not how to build a, a productive basketball team around Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. I know we all talked ourselves into it at the beginning of the year. We all need to kind of take a look in the mirror uh, in that respect, but this just isn't how you build a basketball team in 2020. You know, maybe in 1980 this team would have been really solid. But, you know, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons are two of the most promising young talents in basketball. You should not have a sixth seed with no clear future uh, if Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons are both in your team. And that's where the Sixers are at. I don't know where they go from here. I don't, I'm not particularly confident in their ability to trade with someone like Chris Paul or especially not at Buddy Heald or someone like that who's younger. So I really don't know where you go from here. I mean, they're like a middling 
not even a contender in the East right now. And that that's just unacceptable given where this team started even last summer. So, you know, to go from where they were in the Toronto series to not bringing back Jimmy uh, for whatever reason and giving out the contracts that he gave out, I really do not see any possible, like, reason to give him another chance. It's just not happening for me. Again, I'm sure he'll be back next year. I don't think they're going to fire him because they're the Sixers. And that's how this ownership group works. They seem to like these guys. But, you know, oh well. I mean, and to be fair, like I said, I would be okay if they fired him. I understand it, but I'm not calling for his head either. That's that's where I'm at. I'm okay I if they am. fire him. Okay. Fire and that's, that's where we're at. Comment. And that, and that's where we're at. And and let's let's move forward because there's still a lot that we got to cover here. So we all agree that Brett Brown should be fired, guys. And Stewart, start off first. Who do you think should replace uh, Brett Brown? That's a tough one. You don't know who's available. Number one, after if Houston loses Oklahoma City in the first round, uh, Mike D'Antoni might be available. If they do well, he might not be. No, no, not for me. Oh, well, hey, there'd be three-pointers. There'd be lots more space for uh, Embiid, that's for sure. He would try to get Embiid traded. That's what would happen, to be completely honest. Mm, for Harden. No, yeah, possibly. And, I mean, at that point, you you might want to consider it. But I don't – like, I – well, I'll get into it when I get to my point. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm not a D'Antoni fan for the Sixers. Not how the team's – not the team's – with the team's current stars. I'll get. I'll give you a name that no one else has, who I think would do a great job. Okay, Becky Hammond. She's learned like from Popovich. She's she's won summer league championships. It's somebody who would have put a lot of attention on the team and the players, making sure she did. They did what she said. I think she would make sure they're accountable. She comes out of the Spurs. She's had Olympic experience. I think it'd be very interesting if they made Becky Hammond the uh, head coach. I like it. I like it a lot. I, I definitely think Becky Hammond's a name to watch. I mean, she it hasn't taken her very long uh, to be the number two assistant, I guess, on San Antonio. Um, I think she's number and one, and Brett Brown only got to be number two. Yeah. I think uh, she was no, number, two number two during the regular season, but Tim Duncan's not in the bubble. So I guess in the bubble, she, she was number one. Uh, but I, I do like Mike D'Antoni as well. I've written about Mike D'Antoni in the past as someone that I would I would like maybe like to see. I think Kenny Atkinson is a really strong candidate uh, that I I think you know has an understanding of how modern offenses work, and who has done good stuff in the past um, in terms of building a culture in Brooklyn. So you, that's you don't a name want I Stan like. Van, go ahead. You don't yeah. want Stan Van Gundy, who's openly Please campaating. No. Yes. TV yeah, I don't want, like, a retread coach who is, you know, doing broadcasting because there's a reason he's doing broadcasting, you know. Like, Mark Jackson, very good Andy, at broadcasting. Stamping, he is a great broadcaster, but please do not make him head coach. So, <laughs> I do like Becky Hammond. I think, I don't think it would happen, but if they, like, threw money at Tim Duncan, maybe had him come and coach with Embiid, that would be kind of cool. I could maybe get behind that. Uh, he obviously doesn't have a ton of experience at this point, but he is also the top guy under Popovich at this point. So that'd be a really interesting name for me. I could maybe get behind that. But uh, Becky Hammond, 
Mike D'Antoni, Kenny Atkinson. Those are all names I really like. I'd, I'd fully endorse any of them. So I'm going to tell you guys why I, why I don't personally have them on the top of my list. Becky Hammond, I think, I think she's going to be a wonderful coach someday. I don't think the Sixers' toxic environment is the right one for her to come into. You need to have a culture set in Washington. I think it is toxic when you consider uh, ownership and consider yeah. how the Jimmy Butler thing went down, which, by the I way... I think there's a difference between incompetence and toxicity, and I think it's more that they've just been incompetent. But I, I see where you're coming from. My point still stands with Becky Hammond. Also, anybody from the Spurs, we just had a Spurs coach. We have a Spurs assistant coach in the email. <laughs> I don't think the Spurs philosophy is going to work right now for the Sixers because it hasn't been working. Not saying that the Spurs are a bad organization, but I think right now they need a change of philosophy and they need a change of pace. And while Mike D'Antoni, yes, is fun, I think he would unlock Ben Simmons. I also don't think he would like having Joel Embiid because he had a terrible time with um, without uh, Dwight Howard, another post-up center. And, you know, I don't think he would be able to utilize Embiid correctly, and I think he would try to force the front office, whoever's in the front office, to try to trade Embiid. So... Unless you can get somebody like, you know, Devin Booker or something like that. But, you know, we'll see about that. But my point is is that I don't like Dan Tony because I don't think he'll make this current duo of stars work. My pick is actually two or two possibilities. My 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 you know, flashy name would be Ty Lu. He's dealt with big name personalities. He's a player's coach. He's a good tactician. I like Ty Lu. I think he would be an ideal choice. And somebody else on the Clippers coaching staff, uh, staff, and he's my dark horse here, is Sam Cassell. Sam Cassell was a really – he was an all-star level point guard when he played in the NBA. He's been on he's been on the Wizards bench and the Clippers bench. He's studied under Doc Rivers. He's played under Doc Rivers like Ty Lue. I like Sam Cassell. And if you want to try it for a first-time head coach, I think Sam Cassell would be a really nice fit there. So those those would be my two top picks for uh, for head coaching positions. Yeah, if you had to make me pick someone right now of the names available, I think Kenny Atkinson would probably be where I landed at. Atkinson's yeah. Brett Brown, though, isn't he? I mean, I get what you're saying, Stuart, and I mean, you're not 100% wrong. So I, I get what you're saying on that one. Culture guy, fully so. building team, has had questions about. You I know, mean, seven. he took the Nets to the to the postseason though. He he wasn't really rebuilding for too long there. But I mean, to be fair, that was more Sean Marks than it was Kenny Atkinson. Sean Marks I getting. I don't know. I think Atkinson was a really big part of that and a really big part of setting the culture there, which I think that he got used a really good Brett culture Brown. coach. I mean, Brett Brown was supposed to be a culture coach too. That's, I mean, so I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not like I wouldn't be mad if Kenny Atkinson became the head coach, but he's definitely not my first choice. Fair enough. I really do like Becky Hammond, though. I think that would be a really cool, cool move. I think Becky Hammond needs the right situation, and I don't think the Sixers are the right situation for her. Yeah, I definitely think we can debate debate whether the Sixers are like the best situation for any of these coaches, like individually. But as far as who would who would benefit the Sixers, uh, I do think Hammond would be a really solid choice. Fair enough. So moving on, I think we all we've already kind of uh, voiced our opinions on whether or not Elm Brand should be fired. But is there any front office people that you guys have in mind that you would want uh, uh, 
to a brand to be replaced by? Actually, I do have Daryl Morey. <laughs> Actually, I wouldn't hate that idea either. How about Sashin Gupta, the executive vice president of the Minnesota Timberwolves? Sam Hinkie's right-hand man. That would solve a lot of hurt. Bring back Hinkie, basically, it would be. Yeah, why don't they just re-sign Hinkie? I mean, hey. Or, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he's ready to come back after that yeah. manifesto. I think he's he's done. Yeah, fair enough. I, I do think Gupta would be an interesting choice. He did just sign in Minnesota, though, so I don't know if he'd be, be you know, willing to jump ship this quickly. Um, but he is under contract, I would assume. But if Daryl Morey gets fired in Houston, he's a really smart guy. I, I don't think he would try to just trade and beat in Simmons. I, I do think he would, you know, approach it differently because those are different players than James Harden and Russell Westbrook. So you adjust based on the guys you have. And I think he's an adaptable uh, GM. I think more than he gets credit for. I think he's done a really good job building Houston and the team it is even if they don't quite get over the hump. So if he does end up getting fired, I, I wouldn't hate it. So for me, it's actually somebody that works for Danny Ainge. It's Danny Ainge's right-hand man. And I know his last name is Zimmer, and I can't remember his first name. Mike? So, no, definitely not Mike. <laughs> no, he's. I think Mike Zimmer is the head coach of the, the Vikings. I think it's Zarin. Yeah, Zarin. Is it Zer- okay? Is it Mike Zer? I'm about, I'm looking it up right now. I can't. Re- I could not. I had it earlier in my head, and then now I forgot it. So I'm just. I'm looking it up real quick. I uh, think he's been offered a couple GM jobs and turned it down. I think he even interviewed with the Sixers before they hired Brand. Yeah, I think you're right. But my I, understanding but, is that he's a big Celtics guy, so maybe he just wants to stick it out until Ainge leaves. Uh, yeah, well, like I said, for me personally, I I think uh, I like I would like him if uh, if we could get him. Oh, yeah. That's that's my that's my guy because he's done a really good job with Danny's number two. So that that's that's my choice there. I'll vote for him uh, if he's interested. I don't know if he's interested. Obviously, he's had a pretty big role there, and I think the Sixers would benefit from having someone who understands Danny Ainge because he has gotten the best of Philadelphia on multiple occasions at this point. So, uh, I buy it. Yeah, so I would definitely go with... um, I I would go for for him for sure, but that's just just me. Um, Where where is he? Hang on, it's coming up here. I know it is. Um, Marketing sales. No, I don't want that. Where's the front office? Anyway, not the important part here. Um, the important part is that the Sixers have their options. I I like I like him, the Celtics guy. So that's my personal choice. But, uh, you just have to make sure that they're going to fire somebody whose openings first. I don't think that's guaranteed. Yeah, I don't think Elm Brand getting fired is guaranteed. Like I said, I think he'll get a. I think, like I said, for most GMs, I give them the the rule of three. Give them th- same thing with head coaches. Give them three years to establish a culture before you do anything with them. Uh, but that being said, that's like uh, saying give Jim Boylan three years to get things right in Chicago. Uh, okay, fair enough. But we okay. <laughs> Okay, I get what you're saying because I, I I thought Jim Boylan should have never gotten the chance in the first place. That being said, let's go ahead and move on to do we trade Simmons in it or beat the summer guys? No. 
No. Please, no. No, no, I think we can all agree on that. That's a pretty simple, resounding no. You got to get the right head coach. You got to get the right personnel because two years ago, they played really well together. Last year, they still played pretty well together. This year, they didn't have any personnel that really complimented them. No more JJ, no no more Jimmy, not a, high, a lot of high-volume shooters, and, well, we saw what happened. So, no, they yeah. need the right roster around them. I think at this simple point, it's pretty clear that the Sixers' diminishing success – um, with that duo, duo is because of the people around them and not them getting worse. Um, I, I mean, obviously, this wasn't Embiid's best season individually, but if the Sixers put more shooters and playmakers around those two, they're going to do good things. I don't think they are the issue at all. And the people who are just claiming that it's an absolute necessity that Philadelphia can't move forward until they trade one of them, I truly do not understand it because we have tangible evidence of them being very good together and having really solid chemistry. It's not a yeah, perfect a, fit. It I had a question, a for, both you, I had a question for, for both you guys, actually, mm-hmm. on this subject. Because I don't hear anybody saying, oh, if Houston doesn't advance this year, trade James Harden. If Denver doesn't win, trade Jokic. Are we are Embiid and Simmons the only star players that people talk about trading to other teams? I don't like if the Celtics get crushed by Toronto, are they gonna say, Oh, let's trade Tatum, let's trade Brown? I don't hear anybody else trying to get traded except our two guys. Yeah, I think it's I think it's just because Embiid and Simmons clash so obviously in terms of play style. And people focus so hard on Ben Simmons' lack of a three-point shot. They're just such unique players that it's really easy to, to kind of, like, pinpoint those two as guys who maybe don't fit together. But, like, what if the Clippers lose to Dallas? Paul George has played like garbage. Are they going to be, you know, are there going to be a bunch of people clamoring for them to trade Paul George this summer? Probably not. Um, you know, no one's ever going to say the Lakers should need to, you know, should trade Anthony Davis if they lose the series. Um no one's going to say the Nuggets should trade one of their guys, of course, like you said. So I do, I do think it's a bit, you know, people are a bit overzealous in, in kind of talking about Embiid and Simmons as these unworkable uh, players because they aren't. But I understand why they're the f- kind of focused on like they are, but it, it is, again, just ridiculous because they're, they're two top 25 players in the league, and you keep those guys no matter what. There's really no logical reason to break them up unless they want to be broken up, unless Embiid or Simmons ask for a trade, which is becoming increasingly more possible with the direction this team is going, you don't break it up. So, you yeah, know, you don't break it up either. And like Chris said, it's, it's not, it happens every once in a while. Like I remember back in, what was it, like 2014-15 when the Pistons had uh, Greg Monroe... Andre Drummond and Josh Smith, you know, everybody was clamoring for them to trade one of those guys, and they ended up getting rid of two of those guys. It's one of those things where if you have an overlap of, you know, skill set and, and clearly not fitting, it's, it's, and, you know, it's just the, the media is always looking for the next big star to be traded, and Philly's situation makes them a likely candidate, so they always try to perpetuate that story. Yeah, and I think, again, the difference between that Detroit situation and Philly is that Embiid is 26, Simmons is 24, and they're both two of the 25 best players in basketball right now, as is Sands' three-point shot, all that. They are two of the most impactful players in the league. Simmons was a defensive player of the year snub for a lot of people. Embiid is one of the most emphatic rim protectors on the planet. 
Like, these are both two-way superstars who bring a lot to the table on both ends. I'm not saying you don't consider trading Simmons if someone like Damian Lillard becomes available. But, you know, say for a very select... For, yeah, for there are a very select few situations where you consider trading them. Like, unless there's a like, remarkable offer or, you know, unless there's something that really blows them out of the water, there's no reason to, like, actively look to trade these guys. Uh, it's so, just not the problem. It's it's not Ben Simmons is not the problem. Joel Embiid is not the problem. You don't trade them. They're too good. It's it's as simple as that. So yeah, no, Kristen, you're right. Unless you have a remarkable trade for one of them, and I was gonna save this for my uh, my you know my big hot take, but um, I'm gonna share this because I have two. I'm gonna share this one right now. The only way I would trade Embiid and build around Simmons. And this is the only way that I could see it happening is a package from the Minnesota Timberwolves, including Carl Anthony Towns in the first overall pick. It would have to be more than that, but that would have to that would get me to the table about considering trading Joel Embiid. Now, let me be clear: I my stance right now is that you don't trade a Joel Embiid, but if you wanted to get my interest, you start out with that. I would need more. Yeah, as great as Towns is, and he's super special, I, I think he did a lot of crap that he doesn't deserve. A lot of people question his toughness when I really don't think that's fair. Like, he's probably the best offensive big outside of Nikola Jokic in the league. I definitely think he surpasses Joel on that end. He's super special. and He's the third best center in the NBA. Yeah, and I, I like LaMelo Ball a lot, too, or Anthony Edwards, any of those guys. LaMelo would be my pick in that situation. Like, that's not a bad package, but... And like I said, you, that would get me to the table. That's not going to finish yeah. the deal. But yeah, if, Joe's really if, good. So you would have to give me more, but if you want to... If you're interested in trading Joel, that's the type of package that you would have to offer for me to even listen to the idea. Yeah. Which is the, preposterous because I don't think the Timberwolves would do it. So, I, so in other words, it's not... You're not going to get Joel and be traded, but if you are, it's going to have to be some crazy package like the third best center for the first best center, plus the first overall pick, plus whatever else the Sixers want. Yeah, not D'Angelo Russell, for sure. Well, the, I mean, if they take out Horford too, maybe. Now, yeah, yeah. But like but you that, said, unless there's like an absolutely like irrefutable offer, you, the Sixers should not be actively looking to trade these people. Is my yeah, basic exactly. point. There's no yeah, reason no. to like go out and say I have to trade Ben Simmons because he won't mm-hmm. fit next to Embiid, because we know for a fact that he can and that it's possible if you mm-hmm. just put shooters and ball handlers on the floor like every other NBA team. <laughs> it's not that and, hard. And like I said, I'm not looking for that trade either. I'm just saying yeah. if the Timberwolves came and said, "Hey, we want Embiid. This is what we're willing to offer." That that type of offer would at least let me listen and see what else else they're willing to yeah. give up. So that you know, like I said, I'm not I'm not saying the Sixers should trade Embiid or Simmons. I'm not saying that, but if you have to get something for him, it would have to be a crazy offer like that. Fair enough, I agree. But uh, moving on, and I think we're about done with this section here because we still got a lot to cover here. Uh, any type of players you guys have off the top of your head that the Sixers should try to target this off season? Chris Paul. Issues, issues. Chris Paul. Okay, Chris. Yep, that makes sense for. Yep, you've been pushing for Chris yes. Paul. Stewart, Derek anybody? Rose. Derek Rose? Not a good enough shooter in my mind. But I understand. I, mean, I, I, I do think he helps. 
you know whether just because of his ability to get to the rim, create his own shot, I do think he helps quite a bit. He's been a pretty decent shooter too these past couple of years. That's and fair. So, yeah, and I do think he's a much more attainable option than someone like Chris Paul, who's going to take you know quite a few picks. I mean, he's thirty-five, so I, yeah, I think Rose is a good one. I also like to solve like. A new player who's actually on a contract, I think they should just get bring up Christ Comanji, make him the backup center, get rid of Horford, trade Pell, he's got something, get some draft picks, and you're good for the backup center. I think I like that's Christ Comanji a lot as well. Uh, the only thing with that is I really don't I think a lot of Sixer fans are underrating just how difficult it's gonna be to get rid of Horford. Like I don't know who in their right mind would take his contract at this point. The you know, a young, a young team isn't going to want to take four years of Horford's contract, especially if they're trying to maintain financial flexibility. A competitive team isn't going to be like, yes, give me three years of subprime Al Horford for $28 million a year because he's obviously not that good at this point. It's, we've well established that he's just not the player he used to be. He's massively overpaid. I don't think there's a single contender out there where Horford makes sense financially or even like on the roster for whoever we would get back. So I, I just don't see how the Sixers get rid of them. They should try, obviously, and do what they have to to do it if they can. Um, you know, Chris Paul, again, I'll keep bringing up that name. Horford's probably the main contract component in a deal like that, but it would require probably like two or three first-round picks at least. And Paul's 35. He's really old himself. So it's going to be really difficult, I think, to get out from under that Horford contract. I think, I think you might... got Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, you got to target bad organizations like the Knicks or the uh, the Kings. Yeah, Kings but like, wanted last the Kings, Vlade's gone, so they probably aren't that stupid anymore. Well, who uh, knows, because they still have their owner. Who knows? Yeah, but... It's the Kings. Even the Kings have, like, Marvin Bagley, and they got some frontcourt talent there. They aren't starved for center at this point. And the, the Knicks. Knicks have Mitchell Robinson. So you're not going to play Al and Mitchell Robinson together because that's just not – doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So but For some reason, they refuse to start Mitchell Robinson. And let's face it, you know Tom Thibodeau would like a veteran center like Al. <laughs> yeah. So that's let's – let's so, you know – Who do the, the Knicks, Knicks have who, – who are the Knicks going to trade? They have the cap space. Yeah, but – I mean, the Sixers would have to give them Julius Randle over Al Horford at this point. The Knicks are, A, going to want to keep that cap space because they're obsessed with the idea of signing a star. They think they can do it. They continue to think they'll be able to do it, even if they can't. And that's like the whole MO of the Knicks organization is who are we going to sign with all this cap space? That's like been their, their operating, like, goal for the past four years. I got, I got one for you. Open cap space. I got you, the Hornets. Well, why? Just, why? Because, first off, they still want to get off. They might want to get off the Terry Rozier's contract. They need a center, the- but they don't need a 34-year-old on a $100 million contract who's past his prime and who clogs up any cap space. I mean, to be fair, we all know Al Horford still played pretty well without Embiid on the floor. So, yeah, I don't... But I think his... No one's going to want that contract. It's not that Al can't play decently for one of these teams, but his contract's just so bad. 
and it's still got three years left on it. I don't see any team that's going to be, you know, chomping well, at the first, bit to the, take it. The first two years are fully guaranteed, but that third one is not. That third one would only cost him yeah. about twelve million, I think. What is it around twelve million for the last year if he doesn't get win a championship, which is unlikely at this point. So yeah, even so, um, you're still you're still punting financial flexibility for two years. I, I mean, Michael Jordan's known for making bad financial decisions. I'm just, yeah. I'm trying to think of teams that don't have a good history, and all three of those teams don't have a good history. So that's that's why I won with them. You could argue that it could have been another team. Maybe the Pistons are willing to take it for draft compensation because they're in a rebuild. That would make sense to me, honestly. Actually, the Pistons would probably be a prime candidate because he would still fit next to Blake Griffin if they can't get rid of. Or we take on hey. How about we take Blake Griffin over Al Horford? I would do that, wouldn't you guys? Sure. He yeah. can shoot when he can stand up. And healthy. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. Um, By the way, Tobias, the Knicks would probably like him. He's a local guy. They would be more Yeah, they, they, they tried to target him last summer. So, yeah, we could trade Tobias. Yeah. James Dolan would want Tobias, and you can't. James Dolan gets what he wants. So you could get I, Tobias to New I definitely think Tobias is more movable. I don't know. Again, I don't think he's. I don't think it'll be easy to move him. I don't think the Sixers are going to get value back for either of these guys unless they, uh, you know, unless it's a very, you know, unless it's a Chris Paul scenario where they're old and they don't really have a place on their team, which there aren't very many of. Which is why I keep building back Chris Paul. But yeah, I mean, is Blake Griffin really an upgrade over Tobias on this team? Probably not. not. Not Tobias, but Al Horford, for sure. But yeah, I mean, but even then, you know, Griffin's contract yeah. is shorter. I don't know if Detroit would want to, you know, Lucas, unless he gave up, again, draft picks. But. Lucas, you're forgetting the big problem with Blake Griffin coming to the Oh, Sixers. because he's a power forward, and the Sixers no. already have Tobias here. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Because he dated Kylie Jenner before oh, Ben. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's right. There would be that in-house rivalry with him and Ben. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, just trade for Jordan Clarkson at that point and just let them all air it out. Oh, you know what? Could happen. Who knows? Um, who knows? But, uh, gosh, um, I guess the one player that I would like to target this offseason, if possible, would have to be, oh, gosh, I had him in my head earlier, but because of this fun conversation, I totally blanked. Um, I guess it would have to be... Um, I had to pick one player that could help us. I think I would target Buddy Heald if I could. Um, yeah. I don't know how likely that is, but, you know... Not the very. Kings don't seem to, the Kings don't seem to value him as much as they used to. Because you know Luke Walton put him on the bench, but yeah. Um, but the thing is, other teams can like offer big contracts who are at least like appealing players. And, well, would you do Tobias Harris plus you know a young player or pick for Buddy Heald? I think I I think they would. I take don't him. know. I mean, if you could get him to take Horford and picks, yeah, obviously. But I don't know if they'd do it. I mean, I would do it for Tobias or Horford, but mm-hmm. yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I think uh, Tobias is, is better, hypothetically, in, in a more fitting role than Buddy. I think mm-hmm. Horford's the real real bugaboo here, but yeah. I mean, if you can get out from under 
Harris's contract, you do it. So, so this week was a busy week, and we did not uh, get an opportunity to do our social media post of the week. But Lucas had the idea, since it was such a disappointing season for all of us as Sixers fans, there's a lot of hot takes that are going to be going around. And Stephen A. and Kellerman are not the only ones that have hot takes, right? So each of us on this call right now are going to come up with one hot take going into the offseason. What is something that we expect to happen in our own minds, but maybe not everybody is thinking about? So why don't we go with Stuart? What's your hot take going into the offseason? My hot take is that to heal the wounds of the Hinkyites and the people who've been following them lately, that Josh Harris will name Hinky's number two guy, two guy when he was in charge, Sashin Gupta, as the president of basketball operations, but Elton Brandt will remain his general manager. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I can see it. Chris, you want to go next? Oh, okay, I'll go next. Um, yeah, go my hot take is that Brett Brown will be the next head coach of the Chicago Bulls. They need a coach to help their rebuild, and the fact that uh, Mark Ever uh, Eversley is already there, there's a strong connection there, and you know, so I think in that regard, I think that uh, Brett Brown will—he's he, not a bad coach. I don't know if he's a championship coach, but he's definitely not a bad coach. He'll get another job. And the Bulls seem like an ideal situation for him to go to. Yeah, I dig it. Good hire uh, for Chicago. <laughs> um, my hot take, I, I don't really know if this is a hot take. It's probably not. It's probably a very mild take. But with all the conversation going into this summer about the changes that need to be made and the volume of changes that need to be made, I really don't think a lot's going to change. I think Al Horford and Tobias Harris are both on the roster when next season starts. I think Elton Brand is still the GM. And I think the Sixers are going to run into a lot of similar problems next season because they simply don't have the cap space or the flexibility to make real serious roster changes unless Horford and Harris are traded, which is going to be hard to do. So I guess my hot take is that we're going to be in a similarly rough spot when 2020-2021 comes around. Uh, as much as I've said on this podcast that they should go for Chris Paul and that everything should burn, and I, I believe all of that, but as far as it actually happening with the Sixers ownership group that I, I know favors a lot of these guys in the front office and that has been averse to change in the way that they have been in recent years and that has let the team get to this point, I'm not really confident in much of anything happening beyond Brown getting fired. So I guess that's my sort of hot take is that we're probably going to see a very similar product next season. Too bad they don't have the, the amnesty provision available, right? If they, nope. if they had that, that, that would be great. It would. But who would you use it on, Chris? Horford or Tobias? Uh, I, I'd honestly need to to do some research on exactly how that works, but oh, the the MC clause is pretty simple. You um you get to stretch. You still have to pay the player out, but it's not on your. Uh, you stretch their contract out. So if it's like three years, you have to pay them for five years or mm-hmm. some weird 
situation like that. Uh, Josh uh, Smith just got off the Pistons uh, books this offseason. Yeah. Put that into perspective. So, wow. I believe Elton Brand was uh, amnestied by the Sixers, wasn't he? He was. He was back in 2012. But he only had like one or two years left anyway. So it was not like it was a long amnesty. Smith. Yeah, so it, it, it'll take a while for Horford to get off of our books, but it'll be in a sm- much, or Harris, but it'll be in a much smaller. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously they need to be strategic about that. Like, if there was a way to, to manipulate it to where you could get off of someone's contract and then amnesty the other and create max cap space within a year or two, uh, then you go for it. But unless there's a clear, pronounced benefit, given that the Sixers are way over the tax at this point. Oh. I'm not sure there would be, but, uh, you know, they, they would have to be smart about it, and they would have to have a plan, and like a game plan and a plan of attack to really make sure that it made any difference before they, yeah, they just get something. Here's the question, Chris. Let's say they did that. Let's say Horford's off the books. Harris is off the book. What If the current organizational structure is still there, what free agent is want to come here? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do think there's still some appeal to playing with Joel and Ben just because of how, how good they can be. But I, I don't think the Sixers have helped their free agent appeal, especially with the whole Butler fiasco, which we didn't really get into with this podcast. But Jimmy we'll Butler... We'll have to get into that next week. It's pretty clear at this point that Jimmy Butler was not on the wrong side of history here. Like, after all the crap he took last summer and this season... He probably maybe understood better than all of us did uh, just how much of a mess the Sixers are. Uh, the Heat just, they're waltzing through Indiana right now. So maybe he maybe he made the right choice, or definitely he made the right choice, because I do think the Heat are in a much more favorable position at this point than the Sixers. They, could, so, they have a chance to knock out the Bucks in the mm-hmm. second round. Yeah, so props to Jimmy for getting out while he could. I mean, good, good for him, but... And on a serious note, I do, I do think the Sixers have hurt their their free agency chances if they ever have any for the next four years. So my hot take is funny that you mentioned the Miami Heat, Chris, because my hot take is a, a hot take with the, within a hot take. So my hot take is this. The day after the 76ers trade Joel Embiid, they're going to hire Jay Wright as the head coach. There you go. I said it. Mm. They're gonna blow it up, like yeah. you said, Chris. They can't. Yeah. They can't. They're not gonna be able to drop the contracts of Horford and Harris. It's just impossible. I think Miami Pat Riley's up to something. I think they're willing to part ways with Bam Adebayo, and if they can include him with a trade to bring another bona fide star like Embiid to be with Butler, they'll pull the trigger. And Brown, he's fired. He's probably cleaning out his locker right now. But, yeah, I think Jay Wright, I think he's going to make that leap. He could be the next Larry Brown of the NBA. And I think he could gain the respect of the players, even even stubborn Ben Simmons. So that's my hot take, guys. Yeah, so, uh, I, do uh, think, I do think Jay Wright is definitely a name to watch if, if and when the Sixers do fire Brett. Uh, obviously, he's a Philly guy at Villanova, and he's probably one of the most respected college coaches uh, who has any chance of going – pro so i do think that's definitely someone someone we should be watching so i'm gonna say this as much as i think that that that's a possibility 
trading for a Bam Adebayo would be a big mistake. And this is why. He's not a three-point shooter. He's a playmaking big. He's basically young Al Horford without a jump shot, but much better and versatile defensively. So I just I don't see the why that why trading for Bam Adebayo, putting him next to Ben Simmons. And if you're going to keep Al Horford keeping, yeah, no, it just it doesn't make sense for, for the Sixers to go that route if they're going to trade him. Yeah. I, I, I mean, Adebayo is great. I think he's a really special talent. But he is. Miami would have to put a lot into that package to make me even oh, consider yeah. it. Definitely Obviously, some, some first-round picks. Definitely yeah, some picks. Things change if Embiid asks for a trade. But given what he said after the loss on Sunday, I really don't think that's going to happen, at least not this summer. Uh, he doubled down on the fact that he wants to finish his career in Philly. Uh, mm-hmm. He did speak of the possibility of not finishing it in Philly, which I don't think he's done in the past, and I think that's notable. But as of right now, he still seems pretty committed to, to the Sixers, so I don't think they're going to trade him this summer. But if he did at some point ask for a trade, I do think Miami's a team to watch because obviously him and Jimmy get along, and Bam Adebayo is a really good player who fits right into his position. Yeah, definitely. I think the Heaters a team to watch. I honestly can't really think of any because, I mean, I don't, I don't think the Lakers would want him as long as they got AD, and I don't think the Knicks have what it takes to get him. Like I said, I think the Timberwolves could get a package for Embiid, but yet again, why would you? I don't know if you would trade a healthy Towns for Embiid, who's had health issues in the past. So, yeah, well, I mean, Embiid's better. That's why. But I mean, that that's why. But at the same point, I don't. You know, if. It, it, the amount that you would have to give up for Embiid, is it really worth getting Embiid? It, you know what I mean? For for the Timberwolves. Yeah, it's definitely a fair question. I, th- I think the, the, the Embiid trade is more of a stretch than getting Jay Wright as a college coach. And, you know, you look on social media, people say, oh, the Sixers don't need a, a rookie coach who just came from college. But if you look at the success of college coaches making that leap, look at the guy who just knocked us out. You look at Brad Stevens, who is a brilliant coach, and then you look at Billy uh, Billy Donovan. He's had a lot of success wherever he's been. He hasn't won a championship, but it's been done before. And I think Jay Wright, uh-huh. he's been at Villanova for two decades. Maybe he, yeah. he has an itch to do something different. I, but I the see- other the other side of that coin is, you know, John Beeline in Cleveland, John and Beeline, that yep. kind of fell on his face there. So there are definitely, you know, some cautionary tales as well. It doesn't always work. Patino. So they'd have to make sure they're really confident in how Jay Wright, uh, just culture-wise, uh, translates to the NBA. Because with Beeline, he just never gained the respect of anyone in Cleveland's locker how, room. How many, rings does B, how, many rings, how many rings does Beeline and Patino have compared to Jay Wright? They, uh, they has a few. But, I'm not uh, sure, but Beeline has been a really good college coach. Like he was one of the best yeah. college coaches in you know out there. I mean, he did really great work at Michigan, West so, Virginia as well. Yeah, I I don't think he was you know someone to laugh at. So they they would definitely need to be careful if they're going to the college ranks. Yeah, I I, I wouldn't go college. I would go former player if I was if yeah. somebody to again Kenny yeah. Atkinson. I really like him. I think Becky Hammond was a great, great choice, Stuart. I, I really like that as well. The more I think about that, the more I really like that as an option. I think that would be really cool. 
uh, direction to go. All right, Luke, uh, Chris, you ready to lead us out? It's almost two hours. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You guys were talking. There's a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I think the Sixers have given us a lot of content. Um, well, guys, I think that's going to wrap it up here. Uh, Stuart, thanks as always for coming on. This is your second appearance. We hope to have you on again in the future. Uh, you can follow Stuart at Twitter at RealStuartL. Um, you can read all his work at the Sixer since he's right. He, he writes some great articles. You can read his most recent article, the Sixer summer of blunders, really great stuff. I highly recommend you check it out. And to all our listeners, we really do appreciate you giving us uh, the time of day, the time of week to talk Sixers basketball. I know the encore product hasn't been too great lately, uh, but that does seem to give us a lot more to talk about when the Sixers are, are as messy as they have been. So we really do appreciate it. And we'll talk to you all again next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.